Lord, we come before you now and ask that in your mercy and grace, your word would stream forth as a beacon of light, light with heat to warm and illuminate the darkness from our minds and hearts to once again, Lord, stir up our hearts to belief, to commitment, to fidelity, to our loving and caring father and elder brother, and to that spirit who is at work in us and around us. Lord, would you once again strike a straight blow this morning with a crooked stick? And we ask that you would make it so in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would open in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Before we read, I want to say a couple of things to us, and I just want you to think about this so that when we read this passage, I want you to kind of have these kind of thoughts in your mind. How often do you really think about the great efforts God has made on your behalf? I mean, really. I'm not saying on Sunday mornings, yes, Dennis, you always talk about these things, or, you know, I listen to someone on the radio and my heart is blessed, or I read a great devotional, or I do all those things. No. I want you to think about this. How often do you really think about the great efforts that God has gone to to bring you to Himself? I want you to think about it for a minute. And I want you to realize that that is what Paul is talking about in the book of Ephesians. He is trying to get us to come to an understanding of seeing the great complex reality of what God has done, the triune God in three persons has done to bring about your salvation. And the reason why I ask you, when's the last time you really thought about it? Because at some point, I would say that if you really think about that deeply and profoundly, you cannot help but be brought in some measure to tears. And in some measure, maybe even to laughter. Because it's astounding. It's overwhelming what God has done on behalf of foibled, frail, foul human beings. Isn't that exactly what Paul has talked about here? All the way through, he's tried to say, do you see the height and the glory of God in Christ by His Spirit for helpless, hopeless people? And then Paul has gone on to say, I have been so enraptured by this wonder that I'm willing to be in chains. To see other people have the privilege and the opportunity to hear of the great efforts that God has gone to to bring about their salvation. And see, it is here, if we begin to 
grasp hold of all that Paul is saying that we are brought to a place of wonder and worship. That we are brought to a place of deep conviction of our failure to truly believe. Our idols are exposed. And we're reminded again that we have real repentance. We have a real place to go to. That there really is a cleft in the rock where God has prepared for us so that we might escape the wrath to come. That He really has brought poor, worn out, sinful people into a place where they could really know His comfort and love and be found pleasing in His sight. And see, if we begin to grab hold of that, then somehow we begin to understand the mind of Paul. And we begin to then take seriously when he says, I've written to you so that you might have insight into the mystery of Christ. We begin to see this great plummet of information and knowledge going down into very practical and rooted places. Places where we actually can say, wow, that does something in my heart and my mind. And that compels me and instructs me to live in a way that hopefully even though it's stained with sin, somehow finds some measure of pleasingness in God's eyes. That somehow that the things that we do become a soothing aroma because of all that Christ has done and all that the Spirit is doing in us. And if you can begin to grab hold of that, then you begin to see how profoundly amazing it is that Paul talks about in this passage that we're united to Christ. That the new man is being joined together between Jews and Gentiles. You begin to see why Paul says, this is astounding. Because sometimes I think that we don't see it all that, as all that big a deal. It's like, great, you know, Jews and Gentiles, we're all one new man. Great. That sounds good. And now let's move on to more important things. But what I want you to see is that Paul constantly has this on his mind as the reality and the motivation for anything else we might think or do. And so it behooves us to pay careful attention, to draw ourselves deeply into the reality that somehow the uniting of Jews and Gentiles into the person of Jesus Christ, into the one new man, has incredible importance into your everyday life. That somehow this passage of Scripture somehow does something to you. But you have to come to a place where you say, I really believe that matters. I really want to ponder again all that God has done for me and on my behalf. So, then Paul draws us here to focus on the message of the Gospel the mystery of Christ. Let's read together then these seven verses. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, 
as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the same body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Now I could jump immediately to the punchline and say, here is the mystery of Christ, but I really want us to kind of take our time to unpack this and think about what Paul is revealing to us. And as you know, we've taken the last few weeks, we looked at 3.1 a couple of weeks ago, we looked at 3.1 through 6, now we're looking at 3.1 through 7. And Lord willing, over the next few weeks, we'll move on through the rest of chapter 3. But this morning, I want us then to consider these aspects of the mystery of Christ. The first thing I want you to notice then is the patience of God in the mystery of Christ. The patience of God in the mystery of Christ. We're told in the New Testament that at the right time, God brought forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Paul has already told us back in Ephesians chapter 1 that it was not until the right time, not until the reality of His purpose being set forth for the fullness of time that He then brought Christ, the person of Jesus, into the world to redeem sinful man by His work, both in His life and His death and His resurrection. And so, I want us to think about the fact that that took some time. To God, maybe not all that long, but to us, it's a long time. Thousands of years have gone by in the unfolding of the mystery of Christ. And we see that in this passage, as Paul tells us, that this wasn't revealed to all these prophets in the past. It wasn't revealed until Paul and the other apostles were on the scene, until Christ had come. There's all this history of time that's gone on. And so we need to think about this, about the patience of God. And I've written out several questions that I've both heard people say and I've thought about myself, and I just want us to think about this. Some might ask, when we consider the patience of God, this question, why did God wait so long? Why did God wait so long? What was He waiting on? Now, I don't want to be Augustine because, you know, Augustine's little quippy answers often were things like when someone says, what was God doing before he, before he created the world? And Augustine said he was making hell for people to ask questions like you. <laughs> I, I, don't want to say, I don't want to say such things, but that's, that's, quite, a, that's quite a quip from, from a church father. Um, a better question might be to ask this question. Why did God show such patience? See, if we really start to get a hold of the real question here is, is that why did God take any time to deal with us? I mean, why did God even bother to create a world and to scoop up dust and make a man and to watch that man run off and do his own thing and to watch all of his offspring pervert the world and the glory and the image that God had made them? Why wait so long? Just fry them and be done with it. See, if you begin to think about 
these things in their perspective, you begin to say, why has God been so patient to work out these things? Think about the creativity of creating a man, Abraham, drawing him out. Out of him having all these offspring and saying, not Esau, but Jacob. And prior to that, not Ishmael, but Isaac. Why all this dramatic drama of Genesis where Abraham is saying, Lord, when will you give me a son? And playing out all the realities of this covenant and how it works its way through the Old Testament. I want you to just begin to think about the complexity of our salvation and the fact that we have a God who labored long to bring it into reality. And again, that shouldn't ask us, why did you wait so long? It should be, why did you go to such trouble? Why did you mess with us for so long? Why take all this time to bring this about? And again, in some ways, the answer is found in the mystery of Christ. Another question that someone might ask is, why would God, God cut anyone off? Why would He cut people off? I mean, if He's going to take all this time to be patient, why doesn't He bring everybody in? But the real question that we should ask maybe is, why would God include anyone? See, the real reality we have to come to here is to ask ourselves the question of, why has God chosen to mess with any person? And I think this is where if we start to have the courage to really deal with our own hearts, we understand that even in our own personal lives, God is patient with us. He cares for us. He watches over us. He puts up with us. Because we're far less than perfect. And many of us in this room who think we've made it a long way, if we actually would look at God's view of perfection and where we've come in sanctification, we would be deeply grieved and humbled. The reality is, is that God suffers long with His people. He is patient with them so that none of them will perish. See, again, if we begin to ponder on the patience of God as Paul has sought to do, we begin to see how rich and how powerful and how wonderful God has been in loving a people. Think about, as I said before, the time commitment that God has invested. Think about how the Spirit cares for us each day. Paul, as we have seen, emphasizes here the blessing and the benefit of the mystery of Christ being not only revealed, but written down for our ongoing growth and knowledge and application of these great gospel truths. Look here at this passage where Paul says this. He says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, this is verse 2, that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, or it actually could be translated, as you go on reading this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Understand this. God has been so patient that He has basically tolerated to allow His Spirit to superintend over human beings over thousands of years to write out His revelation that we find in 66 books. Different authors, different languages, different cultural times. God has been patient to work with His people and to reveal Himself 
so that we might know him. And here's the, I guess this is the big million dollar question you might want to think about when you don't really like the fact that God is patient. What you're really at the heart and soul asking is, God, do you really know what you're doing? Are you sure? Because somewhere deep down inside, most of the time when we get impatient with what God is doing, it usually is the fact that we don't really believe He knows what He's doing. And so that then drives us into our next point, which I think Paul has in his mind, which is the promises of God and the mystery of Christ. Back in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God made this promise to Abraham, and I'll read it to you. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And here's the million-dollar question of the Old Testament, which comes into the New Testament as well. God, will you really keep your promises? Really? Will you really keep them? See, isn't that what we read through the life of Abraham? Is his struggle to say, I really will believe that God will keep his promises, even to a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. But the reality is, is that God was seeking to bless all the families of the earth. And so what I want us then to begin to unpack then as we begin to look at these promises of God is that Paul is saying that the realities of the promises of God are found in the fact that Gentiles are brought into the family of God. That part of the mystery of Christ that he's really honing in on at this point is this. Gentiles are included as the people of God. And it's not so much that that was a mystery that the Old Testament didn't talk about, but rather the mystery is the manner in which they would be included. And I think at this point I want you to really think about the fact of how folks would be dealing with this in Paul's day. The Jews could never have foreseen clearly that God would make them and Gentile and the Gentiles into one new people ever. That's beyond their wild. I mean, fine, Gentiles come in and they're made to be a part of us. But never in their wildest imagination had they thought somehow God would take what they were and take what Gentiles were and say, it's not either one of these things, it's a whole new people. Which is why, he can, why Paul can write in Colossians and in Galatians the same idea. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Not denying the fact of their cultural heritage, not denying the realities of the cultural things they grew up in, but... I want you to understand that Paul could actually come in and say, God has kept His promises, but not necessarily in the way you thought He was going to do it. There's a mystery to it. And that mystery is now coming to fruition. That there now is one new humanity. And the reason why I want you to think about this, and I'm not just trying to belabor the point, but realize as a minister who sits down and looks at this passage, I could basically say, I could have said, you know... Why really take the time to go back through chapter 3? Because really what Paul's doing in chapter 3 is kind of rehashing what he told us in chapter 2. Somehow he feels the need to take us right back up there and talk about it some more. But if we weren't sitting here in this passage talking about it some more, we'd miss the whole point that Paul was getting at. This is so important, we need to talk about it some more. Some more. 
And yet oftentimes, I wonder how much this even ever crosses our mind. That we have been brought into one new people. That the promises of God have been fulfilled in that idea. Now you might not think that this is all that big a deal, but if you had grown up in the churches that I grew up in, we had huge seminars and discussions about the two people of God and that the Jews and all the promises of the Old Testament were being fulfilled in them, and then there was a, a church age that was kind of a, a parenthesis in God's big plans, and then God now comes at the end and does some more. If you had grown up in that kind of church and in that kind of understanding, you would realize how profound the ideas that Paul are laying out here are. And there are churches across this dear city and across this nation and around this world that that's exactly what they believe. That there's Jews and all their promises, there's the stuff that's happening in the church right now, and then there's what's going to happen at the end, and the promises of God will be fulfilled, and there'll be a new temple built in Jerusalem, and sacrifices will be recommenced, and all types of things of this nature. And understand, there's a whole wing of Christianity, a much bigger wing than ours, by the way, than Presbyterian or Reform, that holds and embraces that to be true. And the reason why I want to spend time here this morning thinking about God's promises is if that's true, then what Paul is writing in Ephesians basically is saying that Paul got it wrong. There are still two people of God that all this confrontation that Paul was under because he was saying there is now one people of God. The issue is not Moses. The issue is that these two groups have been united together in Christ. That all the promises of the Old Testament, all the covenant unfolding of the Old Testament was to bring us to this place, this mystery, which is now being revealed in the person of Christ. So obviously Paul thinks that we should not be wrapped up in two people, but rather we should be wrapped up in the one people and that one people being in union with Christ as one new man. Paul says if you're really going to get excited about the mystery of Christ, you have to get excited about the fact that Jews and Gentiles' distinctions have been brought completely to irrelevancy in Christ. We are, if we have faith in Christ, one People. And all the promises of the Old Testament are for the one people of God. Now I'm trying to say this to you because I want you to understand this is radical. And that's why even Christianity has struggled and people continue to go back because it makes a whole lot more sense biblically to think, well, there's the Jewish people and now God's being kind of nice to the Gentiles because, you know, He's not a mean and a bad God. But the reality is, is that that's not at all what Paul's point is here. His point is, is that that way of thinking is incorrect and inaccurate. That what we need to believe and what we need to understand is that God has brought the two people together. And I want to illustrate this by two parables that Jesus told. I'm not saying this is the whole point of what Jesus... I'm just saying they may help us to grab a hold of this. One of them is the parable of the two sons. See, in some ways, what Paul is dealing with here is, is that if we go all the way back to creation and its beginning in Adam, that Adam basically had two sons. 
He had Seth, who was of the seed of the woman, and he basically, out of his line came Abraham, and out of that group grew out the Jewish people, and so they in many ways kind of embody that elder son. They've always been with God. But then you have that other guy, Cain, and all his family, and the seed of the serpent, and they basically take the father's generosity and his good gifts and their inheritance, and what do they do? They go out and use it in perverted ways. Not always in negative ways. They, from them, we learned how to keep sheep. From them, we learned how to play flutes. From them, we learned metallurgy. Scripture teaches us that, that it's from the line of Cain that many of those things came into existence. But they used it to worship the creation rather than the Creator. And so they went out and squandered it. And now if you can kind of grab hold of that, what are we seeing that Paul is dealing with? Now the prodigals are coming home. The Gentiles are being brought back into the family. God killed the son, the fatted calf, and celebrated celebrated the return of his children. And all the elder brother can do is say, all these years I've been slaving for you. And therefore they miss the whole point of the fatted calf. And they don't come in and join in the celebration. And so that's one aspect of it. The other parable that Jesus uses that might be helpful for us to think about is the parable of the people who came in. You know, the master goes out and says, I need my fields to be harvested. The harvest has come and I need workers. And so he goes out in the morning and he says, Will you, I'll pay you this amount of money. I'll pay you a day's wage if you will go out and work in the fields. That's a, that's a good deal. And they strike up a bargain and they go. And then he goes out about midday and what does he find? Well, the, the field's not harvested yet. And so he basically pays out and says, I'll give you a day's wage if you'll go out. And with only a few hours of the harvest left, the master still realizes it won't get done by nightfall. And so he goes out and says, I'll give you a day's wage if you just go even for the last couple of hours and harvest. And what happens at the end? At the end, God's promises are sure. He basically lines everybody up and He begins to pay the men who are only there for a couple of hours first. And He gives them a day's wage. And the people that came at noon were next. And He gave them a day's wage. And finally, these last guys who've been out there all day long at work in the fields of the Lord said, wait a minute. You mean we're, you're still going to give us the same amount of money as you gave the people that only worked for just a couple of hours? And if you kind of look at that as salvation, you mean our salvation isn't better and more important and more rich and more free and more beneficial to us than all these Johnny-come-lately people? You see, that's what Paul is dealing with as he writes to the Ephesians. The Gentiles may be, may be Johnny-come-latelys, but they weren't Johnny-come-latelys to God's plan. They were always in it. They were always a part of Christ's plan. And God has kept His promises. But what I'm afraid of, men and women, is that spirit 
while we may have our theology right about what I talked about earlier, is that that spirit of, well, these people have come in, they're Johnny-come-latelys. Sometimes our very stated churches aren't all that welcoming to the new, to those people who haven't always been among us. And I'm not speaking that directly to our church. I think our church is a pretty welcoming place. But I've been in places where, you know, the new people who don't really know the ropes and don't really understand how things operate. I can still remember, and I won't name the name of the church, but I can still remember, I've told some of you this before, sitting in a, a, a big, huge Presbyterian church in another city. And my family and I basically sat down in a pew, and this sweet, well-put-together lady walked up to the front and stood at the end of the pew and looked at us and she stood there, and she stood there, and she stood there. And I finally looked up at her and said, Yes, ma'am, can I help you? And she goes, um, My family has been in this church for the last 150 years. We have always sat on this pew, and I would appreciate it if you and your family would find another place to sit. Wow. Now, that's beautiful that her family... See, this is, the, this is for me. I both was kind of in shock, but also blessed. Wow. For the last 150 years, God's grace has been extended to your family so that you've sat together in the same pew for 150 years. That's incredible. But it sure would be nice if some of that grace would be extended in the way you choose to treat people when they walk in to your church. See, I'm afraid that sometimes that little subtlety is not seen, that when the promises of God are seen in the fact that new believers come into our midst, of course they don't know the ropes. Of course they haven't got a clue whether the Hermitings sit right here or the Dugans sit back there or that the Fergs normally sit on that side of the... Of the they have no clue. They have no idea. And, and I make that more obvious so that we start to realize the more subtle things of we have to be a place where we're constantly, we have to be wrapped up in the wonder of the promises of God so that when new people come in, we find it really exciting that they're really excited and that we want to share with them in their joy and be stirred up anew in our joy that God has kept His promises to bring Jews and Gentiles together as one people in Christ. Now the third thing I want us to look at then is the provision of God in the mystery of Christ. God has revealed by His Spirit that Gentiles are, and look what He says in, in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are, and it's a shame that if you're looking at an ESV, and I rarely ever say anything that's a shame about any translation, because I'm always grateful for the men and women who do... But the New American Standard here, I would say, has it over in verse 6, over the ESV, because what it gets it right that in Greek, it says this, this mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers. And while that may seem insignificant, notice it's the same prefix. They're all joined together. It's all in fellowship with one another. They're in fellowship together in all these things. And so that the Gentiles have now been brought into an inheritance which they were cut off from for many years. They've squandered it, and now God has brought them in and given them a place, an inheritance among the saints. And then he goes on to say that they are members of the same body. 
they're not some kind of gangrenous outgrowth that needs to be cut off or this extra appendage, but rather they have always been part of the plan of creating this new man, that they're necessary, that they're part of the hands and the feet and the arms and the eyes and the ears and all the rest of the body. They're necessary. They're fellow members. They, they are part of us. And therefore we love them and we cherish them and we value them. And for some of you that were in the Sunday school this morning, you kind of feel like you're getting a rehash. If you saw me kind of chuckling this morning as Bruce was talking, I was thinking, well, we're going to hear about this again. But this, that's the reality of what the New Testament draws into. And it's not, and it's the fact that they're fellow partakers of the promises. And see, the reality is that we just talked about the fact that we need to understand the promises of God to then realize the Gentiles are a part of that promise. They're included. And maybe where we need to go back to in our day and age is if Paul was writing to us, he might be writing and say, you need to come to the place where you realize the Jews are included in all the things that are happening in the church's life. They're a part of you. But it's also maybe the more practical thing is to say that all the different ethnic groups that populate this planet, they're a part of you with all their language differences and their cultural differences. and See, I want to say this, men and women, and I've said it before, but I really want to challenge us to think about this. What maybe brings this really close to home is, is how we're ultimately processing border issues. I'm not telling you what you ought to think. I'm just saying maybe you ought to wrestle with border issues, language issues, all the different things that are happening that in our political swirl, everyone seems to have a very clear idea of what that looks like. And I probably would agree in some manner. I'll go ahead and go on a limb with some of the more conservative views of some of it. But not the spirit of an us-them mentality. Because I have brothers and sisters in Christ that live on the other side of the border. And when we get to heaven, there are no walls. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have to deal with sovereignty issues. Please don't go out here and say, Dennis is saying, didn't say any of that. I said your attitude towards the people that live on the other side of the border needs to be challenged by your understanding of our union with Christ. These people are, are, are our fellow believers and those who aren't need the gospel. It's why we support missionaries all over Mexico, Central America, and South America. So we actually believe people in that region of the world need to be united to us. So what does that look like? What does that look like in hospitality when the stranger is in the land? What does it look like? And I think as Christians, we need to be challenged to think about it and to wrestle through it, and to understand that all believers, no matter where they live, no matter where they hail from, are fellow heirs, are fellow members, and are fellow partakers of the promises of God. Notice also that Paul says here that God has provided us with Christ Himself. And I want you to think about that for a minute. He gave us His one and only Son, whom He loved. His one and only Son whom He loved. He gave Him for us. And that He might be the one that we were included into. 
Because when you really get down to it, Jews and Gentiles have no place in the kingdom of God apart from the elder, the true elder brother, Christ Jesus. No place. He has also provided us the gospel, the provision of the events. He orchestrated the history in such a way that the gospel could actually, at the right time, at the right time, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, a common language was shared by literally millions of people, so the gospel was spread throughout most of the known world. He provided the message itself and provided the messengers, as Paul tells us, that he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. And finally, he provided grace. And that grace, as we looked at in First Peter and we look at now, has granted gifts. And those gifts aren't granted as something that's like, okay, now here's the gifts. And I think it's so powerful when Paul says, God's grace came to me and provided me with gifts. And those gifts weren't left to Paul to somehow figure out how to make it work. What does he say? Those gifts came to me in power. Now, I'm not going to unpack all that today because we've got more Sundays. But I just want you to think about it. Paul saying, the grace of God came to me and gave me gifts to minister to other people not in my own strength, but with the power of God and the oomph of the gospel undergirding it. Which means that when we ask this question, because I've asked you two other questions earlier, God, will you give me everything I need? The answer is a resounding yes and more than you imagine. See, because in some ways what we're really coming to when we wonder whether God really has provided for us, what we're really saying is, God, do you really know how to meet my needs? Do you really know how to care for me? Because it doesn't seem that when other people in my church seem to have issues with me or other people at my workplace seem to have issues, how is that caring for me? Or when my finances don't meet all my needs or when all these things, Lord, don't you know, don't you understand and the answer is a resounding yes. I know all that you need. I know all that you need. I am the provision of all that you need. So in conclusion then, I want us to think about this. The revealing of this mystery brings us as God's people to reflect upon God's patience that God really does know what He is doing. On His promises... He really is trustworthy. And on His provision, God has and will provide all my needs. If you want an Old Testament compliment to this, go home this afternoon and read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want for anything. And continue to read. And you will see that what Paul is teaching you here is found right there in that blessed psalm. May God make us grow as a people who trust Him, who believe Him, and who stand upon His good and faithful promises. Amen.